When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans. 20,000. Agricultural. 250. Industrial revolution. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene. I'm Mike Osborne. Today on the show, I'm going to bring you a conversation I had with a professor named Marsha Bjornrud. And to introduce this piece, I wanted to come someplace that's kind of special to me. So I am on my family's ranch in the Texas Hill Country. Um, The Texas Hill Country in the spring is incredible. It's absolutely gorgeous. There's just all this green. There's like an assault of green. and the hill country, if you don't know it, is uh, sort of rolling hills. It's not, it's not mountainous exactly, but it sometimes feels a little like similar to mountainousness. Mountainousness? There's no way that's a word. Anyway, um, there are places where you have these giant white bluffs of limestone. So most of the hill country is covered in this Cretaceous limestone. Uh, The late Cretaceous, the planet was a lot warmer, and much of what is now central Texas would have been a shallow tropical sea. You can picture it like the Bahamas. So it's, you know, clear water column, lots of sunlight, tremendous biodiversity, and a limestone factory. Okay, uh, on my family's ranch is a little creek. Uh, Maybe you can hear it in the background. And this is a tiny creek. It's not a ton of water. It's enough to kind of splash around in, um, but not exactly swim in. And at the creek itself is an outcrop of limestone. And that's where I'm at right now. I'm sitting on top of that limestone. And this uh, section of rock here is sort of gray and white. It slopes gently to the uh, creek, but then it becomes kind of a cut bank. And it's filled with shallow marine fossils. One of the rocks you find in here is something that sometimes they call it a Texas heart. So imagine a clam dying and the inside of the clam shell fills with sediment. And over time, the shell itself dissolves away, but you're left with an internal cast of the clam shell. And if you orient it the right way, it kind of has a little bit of a heart shape. So that's why they call it Texas hearts. 
You also see these other gastropods that are almost like giant snail shells. They spiral outward. And these are the size of like softballs. I mean, some of them are really, really big. And when I was a little boy, my cousin and I used to come down here and dig out the fossils. My dad would give me and my cousin rock hammers and say, go down there and see if you can get some fossils out of the... My dad talks a little bit like Hank Hill from King of the Hill. Michael, t tell me if you get some fossils out of the rock outcrop. My dad's a character. I'll have him on the show at some point, I hope. Anyway, um, so my cousin and I would come down here and we'd dig fossils out all day. And that was my first introduction to geology. But I don't remember taking a geology class in middle school or high school. We just don't teach geology or earth history that much. And we absolutely don't really do a good job of helping students understand the vastness of geologic time. And you might not ever encounter it again until you get to college. And I feel like for a lot of people who love geology and the earth sciences, that introduction or reintroduction to geology in college, that's an important moment. And that brings me to today's episode. It turns out that my guest, Marsha Bjornrud, had that exact experience. So I started the conversation by asking her, what was it like when you were a freshman in college and you took introductory geology? It was like suddenly being able to read the world. I, I sometimes say that geology is the etymology of the world. It has such a great explanatory power. It tells us how things came to be the way they are. And as somebody who had a kind of humanities bent, and I, I would have thought of myself as a potential English or linguistics major, I saw this as a mechanism for reading the text of the world. And so there was this appeal to me in, in being able to decode and decipher landscapes and rocks. Can I just say I had, like, the exact same experience? I mean, <laughs> really, like, the, almost the exact same thing. I was scared of science, and I had to fulfill a science requirement. I waited till my junior year Ooh. before I was ready to rip off that Band-Aid. And, you know, somebody said, take rocks for jocks, it'll be easy. And I said, oh, yeah, maybe. I, I'd almost forgotten that geology was even a thing. And then, you know, I fell head over heels in love with it. I mean, it just, it, there was something about it. it. It's I like how you reference story and that there's this narrative in the rocks. There's this story of the earth, and that's what geology is all about. For me, it was also scale. It mm. was geologic time. It was dinosaurs. It was oil. It was volcanoes. It was um, tectonics. I mean, there's all this just big stuff that I was like, how do I, how, how is it that I don't know this yet? You know, how is this new to me? And exactly. And how is it that everyone thinks it's not interesting? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the whole rocks for jocks thing, I, I, I bristle at it now because, you know, I, I'm a professor of geology. And um, it says a lot about our relationship with the earth that we don't think it's really worthy of serious academic scrutiny or it's not an intellectually engaging and challenging field. Marsha recently wrote a book called Timefulness, How Thinking Like a Geologist Can Help Save the World. The book is a kind of love affair with geologic time, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to her. Of all the things to love about geology and earth history, for me, the idea of deep time is compelling, it's humbling, 
It's almost incomprehensible. But as geologists, it's our job to make it comprehensible, to make you know, those huge numbers make sense. So I asked Marsha, was there a moment where she kind of got geologic time, or was it more of a slow process of understanding? I, I think it's been a more gradual accretion of understanding for me. I mean, certainly you need to start being able to just do the math and understand 10 to the 6th and 10 to the 9th years yeah. in as a geology student. But I, I can't say there was an epiphany or an, a moment for me where I really got it. And maybe we never can really get it because these are just timescales beyond any sort of human direct experience. But once you hang around the field long enough, as you know, I think you start getting some glimpse of what those numbers mean. Marsha's book covers all kinds of stories from Earth history. Some of these stories are definitely familiar to you, but I wanted to begin our conversation by asking her to give a few examples of moments from Earth history that maybe are less familiar to people. I want to start with the early Earth. Let's pretend we can get in a time machine and go back about four billion years. The Earth is roughly half a billion years old. And we step out of our time machine. What do we see? Well, we probably would be able to step onto terra firma. We think that there was some continental crust that was at least slightly emergent out of oceans, which also probably existed. Probably would not have been a very friendly environment, certainly no oxygen for us to breathe. The amount of volcanism would have been a lot higher than today. The oceans are thought to have been perhaps something like 55 degrees C. Maybe you can help me translate that close to 120 Fahrenheit. Yeah, it's like so a hot spring. Pretty hot water. Yeah. Very hot. <laughs> um, the sun would actually have been about 30% less luminous, but because the atmosphere was so high in carbon dioxide, maybe methane, uh, maybe ammonia. The weaker sun would have been compensated for by the very intense greenhouse warming of the atmosphere. There would have been quite a few meteorites falling, large and small, at least for the next 200 million years or so, based on the, the cratering record on the moon. And the moon itself would be much larger in the sky, was closer to us at that time, and that would have caused extremely high tides. And the day would have been perhaps as short as 10 or 12 hours. The Earth was actually spinning faster on its axis at that time. So the day-night cycle would have been much shorter. So a very different world, but with, with some things that we would recognize, including the beginnings of continents and certainly a global ocean. The uh, I love that bit about the moon. Something about like a giant moon with you know violent large tides, um, mm. and it's still planet Earth. Like it's still you know our home. It's just young. Okay. I uh, the next one I wanted to sort of engage with. I originally just thought about let's just talk about Snowball Earth. There's no way to do Snowball Earth without sort of telling the whole sequence of events beginning with the Great Oxidation Event. So can you tell us the story from the Great Oxidation Event? through the boring billion and to Snowball Earth. <laughs> with pleasure. <laughs> so we come out of this Archean Earth with no oxygen in the atmosphere, thankfully waning amounts of meteorite impact events happening. And around 2.45 billion years ago, we start seeing 
evidence that there is at least some free oxygen in the atmosphere. And that is a biogenic product of photosynthetic organisms, mainly, well, exclusively at this time, single-celled organisms, something like cyanobacteria or pond scum. <laughs> they are oxygen makers. And we start seeing the appearance of a really distinctive rock type called banded iron formation. And these red and steely gray rocks are made of iron oxide minerals like hematite and magnetite in these almost bacon-striped <laughs> banded patterns or layers. In some cases, like up in the Iron Range in Minnesota, they're hundreds of meters thick. And pretty much all the steel ever produced in this country and around the world have come from this kind of rock that was laid down at this time. The reason that these are indicators of a change in the Earth's atmosphere is this, that today, any iron that gets into the oceans immediately meets oxygen in the water and essentially just rusts out of the water column. So today, iron is just a trace element in the world's oceans and, in fact, a limiting nutrient for organisms. They're, they're starved for iron. But when we look at these banded iron formations, they're telling us that there was a time when iron was a very major constituent of seawater. And so again, they tell us that ocean chemistry was very different. And there are a record of this transition. All the iron that had been in solution in an anoxic ocean came rusting out in a geologically relatively brief period of time of several hundred million years <laughs> in the early Proterozoic. And that's what formed these great banded iron formations. And we have photosynthesizers to thank for it. Life figured out how to take the sun's energy, combine it with CO2, and then by exhaling oxygen, then you oxidize the iron. That's right. Yes. And then, so what happens for the next billion years? <laughs> so there's a tendency among people who care about the Precambrian to label the next billion years the boring billion, which again, I think is a, a bit of a a misnomer. And certainly in our part of the world, a lot was going on. We, we see the building of much of North America at that time. Various mountain belts come and go and um, volcanoes rise and fall. But the boring part is that it was actually a period of, of great stability. So we had this huge upheaval of the great oxygenation event. All the geochemical rules were, were changed by even a tiny amount of free oxygen in the atmosphere and the, the oceans. But then things just seem to be on an even keel for, for about a billion years. And during this time, the biosphere remained largely microbial. The only real fossil record we have are, first of all, fossilized microbial mats that are called stromatolites, and then some single-celled fossils of various shapes. But the biosphere was pretty simple for that whole long period of time. Clearly, there were microbial ecosystems and I would argue they were quite sophisticated. There were many different kinds of ecological niches that they were filling, but it, it was a, a tiny biosphere <laughs> made of, of very small organisms for that entire stretch of time. It's, uh, it's so endearing to me that you feel like you have to stand up for the boring billion. Like, it is not boring. <laughs> like, that's what I feel like I'm hearing between the lines when you... It isn't. <laughs> Yeah, we have we we seriously have five or six major tectonic events going on in northern Wisconsin during that time. So I'm not bored. Okay, 
Fair enough. How dare they dismiss this, uh, the boring billion. All right. So what happens after the poorly named boring billion? So things are going along so nicely for a billion years. And then something really goes mad. The climate system becomes severely unstable at the very end of the Proterozoic about 750 million years ago in this episode called Snowball Earth. And the rock record tells us that there were glaciers all over the world. So we see rocks of this age scattered about today's globe. Some of these glacial deposits were deposited at sea level at the equator. So that's a severe ice age. It's not like the ice age we just had the other day in the Pleistocene where basically it's just the polar regions and and the mid-latitudes that were glaciated in the snowball earth time, equatorial regions at sea level were glaciated. So that's a deep ice age. Yeah. What happened? (laughs) Good question. Um, So everybody agrees something crazy happened. Was it really a full snowball earth frozen pole to pole, or was it a slush ball with some areas of ocean open? But what most people think is that the thing that triggered the end of the Boring Billion was the continental configuration of the time. There was a supercontinent that was called Rodinia. This is a whole generation before the more famous Pangaea. And this Rodinia supercontinent that was most of the land masses agglomerated together was a little bit strange compared to today's geography, say, because most of it was kind of straddling the equator. There wasn't a lot of landmass at either pole. Whereas today, if we think of the globe, most of the landmasses are actually in the northern hemisphere and at relatively high latitudes. So Rodinia was an equatorial continent. And somehow there was some cooling on Earth and sea ice and some land-based ice in the few places that were at higher latitudes began to be covered. And that kicks in something called the albedo effect or reflect effect, where the lighter ice reflects heat back to space. Now, in a normal ice age like the one that just happened the other day, there's a negative feedback that will kick in. Once the land surface is covered, there can't be any chemical weathering of rocks. And this is one of the major ways that carbon dioxide is drawn out of the atmosphere. The chemical weathering of silicate rocks essentially takes CO2 out of the atmosphere because it reacts with those rocks, carries the dissolved ions in rivers to the sea, and then that carbon dioxide and the dissolved ions of calcite form carbonate rocks like limestone. And that's a way of sequestering carbon for the long term. Okay, I want to briefly interject here for just a second because that last point is really important. It's actually really interesting and cool, but it's also very easy to miss. So on long timescales, the weathering, the chemical weathering of rocks is tied to the climate system. So the way this works is there's a bunch of CO2 in the atmosphere. It combines with rainwater. It forms a weak carbonic acid, and then that slightly acidic rainwater eats away at the rocks. Those ions flow down rivers and streams to the shallow ocean where a new rock is formed, usually carbonate rocks like limestone. A common chemical formula in limestone is CaCO3. So if you think about that CO3 piece of it, the CO2 is kind of locked in there. It's locked in the rock, which means that the rocks in the shallow ocean, carbonate rocks, are essentially storing CO2 away. 
So there's a lot of details I'm kind of glossing over. It's more complicated than that. But the main takeaway is that the more chemical weathering that's happening on the Earth's surface, the more you're drawing CO2 out of the atmosphere, which means on really long timescales, if the planet somehow ramps up chemical weathering, it starts to cool. Okay, I hope that makes sense. Let's get back to Marsha and Snowball Earth when the globe was completely covered in snow and ice. When land masses are covered, that CO2 sequestration can't happen, and so things warm up again. But in the case of Rodinia, because so much of the land mass was at low latitude, even as the ice was creeping down from the poles, CO2 was also being drawn down through rock weathering, and then, this, and then the albedo effect would cool things more, but CO2 was still being drawn down, so we're getting colder and colder and colder until most of the Earth apparently is covered with ice and we're locked into this snowball state. So all the positive feedbacks just align in one direction. That's the current thing. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. So the next question is, how did we ever get out of it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Since we did. <laughs> and the thinking is, well, you can freeze the Earth, and you can stop chemical weathering, and you can shut down a lot of biogenic activity and photosynthesis, but you can't stop the tectonic system from operating just by freezing the outside of the Earth. So volcanism would have continued, tectonics would have continued, and volcanoes are the main source of atmospheric gases on Earth until the biosphere starts processing them. And so CO2 from volcanoes would have continued to accumulate in the atmosphere, and without a lot of photosynthesis going on, eventually have accumulated to the point where the super greenhouse effect would have overcome the reflectivity effect and many people who study this snowball Earth period think we might have whipsawed from an ice house world to an extreme greenhouse world in maybe a few thousand years. Oh, wow. I, had not, I hadn't heard that before. I, didn't, I mean, I know it takes longer to cool, and that warming happens in a geologic sense very fast. Uh, but I hadn't heard that, that the accumulation of CO2 would have, would have whipsawed into potentially an a, a, a kind of abrupt climate event. Yeah, and the, the evidence for that is that many of these glacial deposits are overlain without any break by carbonate rocks, which are typically deposited in warm, shallow, tropical marine environments, as you know. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's a very odd juxtaposition to have full glacial deposits and then, boom, limestone. There is one other hypothesis for how the warm-up might have happened, and it's not mutually exclusive with the idea that volcanic gases just continued to accumulate, and that is an even more abrupt scenario in which these fossil fuels, essentially called methane hydrates or clathrates, came belching out of the seafloor for some reason and put so much methane into the atmosphere that there was an extremely rapid warm-up, maybe on the order of decades. We do know that life was not extinguished entirely during Snowball Earth. Photosynthesis wasn't forgotten. <laughs> it's a fascinating thing that something went badly wrong, and, and the, the duration of it, to go back again to this sense of temporal proportion, was a long time. It went from about 750 million years to about 560 million years, so almost 200 million years. That's the time that separates us from early Jurassic time. Yeah. So this was not a Pleistocene-scale ice age. This was a deep, cold, long period. And that's very mysterious. Yeah. And then, and then to just zoom out from space and sort of imagine, you know, the third planet from the sun is this white ball, you know, rotating around mm -hmm. and around. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it, again, this is our Earth. 
You know, this is the, the same planet we're sitting on today. Well, okay. So if we were to draw a straight line temperature graph since um, since the meteor killed the dinosaurs roughly 66 million years ago, 65 million years ago, what would that temperature line look like and why? Basically from that point, it's monotonic cooling. It was a very, very warm world in Cretaceous time. We don't think there was much, if any, ice at either pole. And then, of course, we are here. We have polar ice, and we're just coming out of an ice age. So broadly, the whole story of the last 65 million years has been cooling. And climate's complicated. Many things can change it at different timescales. But the first order thing that happened since Cretaceous time is the creation of the Himalaya. And the Himalaya are not just any old mountain belt. They are a, a profound lump on the surface of the earth caused by the underthrusting of, of the Indian subcontinent beneath Asia. This is kind of an unusual thing. There probably haven't been that many Himalaya-like mountain belts on earth. And in the Himalaya, we have essentially doubly thickened continental crust, and as a, a consequence of that, we have ferocious erosion rates and that mechanism that I was talking about earlier about how the weathering of silicate rocks is a very efficient way to draw CO2 out of the atmosphere has been operating quite ferociously for the last at least 55 million years as the Himalaya have grown and then been torn down by erosion. So we've had very efficient sequestration of CO2 through chemical weathering, especially of the Himalayan mountains, for at least 55 million years. And that has been the main thing that's cooled us from the Cretaceous greenhouse world. So there's this big lump of rock and mountain that's creating all this surface area of, of rock to be eroded, which has taken CO2 out. And that's the first order thing, cooling the planet. So where are we, you know, let's say 55 million years ago? Set the scene for us with the Paleo-Eocene thermal maximum. What is this event all about? So we're, we're still in a, a, a world that's quite a lot warmer than it is today. But then we see a remarkable spike in global temperatures recorded with quite high precision in ocean sediments. So when we look at these sea sediment cores from all over the world, they tell a very similar story. What the Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum sediments from 55 million years ago tell us is first there was a, well, what we can see is there's a spike in temperature. And so then we think, why? All of a sudden we see a five or eight degree Celsius spike in temperature over a millennial kind of scale. What caused that? If we look at the carbon isotope record of those same rocks, we see again an excursion telling us a lot of biogenically fixed or photosynthetic fixed carbon was suddenly released into the atmosphere. And third, if we look at the amount of carbonate precipitated, we just see it plummets. Suddenly, the little critters that are making all that limestone and sequestering it as calcite in their shells are not doing so well. So those three things together, temperature spike, lots of biogenic carbon, sudden plummet in the amount of carbonate tell us the oceans became very acid, there must have been a huge spike in greenhouse gases, and the, the temperature warmed suddenly. And so it's, it's a rather abrupt event that can only be explained by some kind of sudden release, essentially, of fossil fuels or biogenically fixed um, hydrocarbons. 
Still have a hard time figuring out where all this carbon came from. Yeah, it's a good question, and there, there are two possibilities. Either these strange methane hydrates um, in icy form, sometimes called clathrates, because they're a, a methane molecule that's in a cage of water ice, and we know these exist across all of the ocean floors today, um, and they can come literally belching out of the seafloor in hours, maybe as a result of a, a landslide that suddenly takes the pressure off them, and then they, they become unstable and they devolatilize. That's, that's one possibility. The other main theory is that maybe during the opening of the northernmost Atlantic Ocean, the great coal beds that had accumulated largely in the Cretaceous in that region were ignited by volcanism. And that too, and then they'd be set on fire and they'd be burning for decades and decades. There are analogs today in Centralia, Pennsylvania. There have been underground coal fires that have been burning for decades, requiring the evacuation of a whole city. That would re release large volumes of, of light or photosynthetically fixed carbon into the atmosphere too. And of course, that's not mutually exclusive. Maybe both horrible things happened. And you could actually make mass balance sort of calculations, how much carbon had to be released to shift the carbon isotope um, ratios of the whole ocean by that much. And it's, it's a lot. It's, it's more than all of the fossil fuels we've burned so far as humans. You know, we've been talking about, uh, in some sense, climate change in the, in the geologic past. And, you know, there's only so much resolution in the rock record for understanding how fast all this went down. And when I was doing paleoclimate work, I you know, would try and talk about wiggles on top of wiggles on top of wiggles. You had that great quote from Richard Alley in your book. What was it? it was mm -hmm. like doing a yo-yo from a bungee cord on a roller coaster or something. Exactly. <laughs> yes. That's so perfect. I really wish I had heard that earlier because uh, that's just a great visualization. Yeah. So, okay. Uh, the last one, and this one's short. I want to talk about the future. Uh, and like the deep future, uh, what's going to happen to the Earth in 1.5 billion years? Hmm. So we do know just from stellar evolution theory that the sun is going to grow progressively hotter as it has been throughout geologic time. And maybe in a billion and a half or two billion years, it'll be hot enough that the oceans will begin to evaporate, which is a depressing thought. And that will... Water vapor is another greenhouse gas, so that'll be another positive feedback without any kind of compensatory breaks on it, and that will will make the Earth even hotter. So maybe the biosphere has got about another billion and a half or two billion years to go, and that's weirdly upsetting to me. Um, I I can look at rocks again here in northern Wisconsin that are a billion and a half or two billion or two point five billion years old, and I can feel a kind of resonance with them. So the idea that we're, we're more than halfway through Earth's habitable time is, is oddly upsetting. Yeah, I, totally. I don't know why, but that is really like, <laughs> I know I'm not going to be around. And I, who knows what happens after we pass, but a billion and a half years in the future is pretty far away. This is not the sort of time skills, you know, we plan anything on. But there's something sad about that. Yeah. There's something sad about the idea that the the story of life on Earth are probably is bounded, is a is a finite thing. It leaves you with a weird feeling, for sure. Yeah. Well, okay. So 
now I want to get to sort of the heart of some of the ideas in your book. We've picked up these rocks. We've gone through these daydreams. Uh, and this is, for me, this is really fun stuff. And it's interesting. But why is it important? What does this do? What is the uh, experience of imagining geologic time do in terms of sort of locating us in where we are in the world today? Well, I think there are there are two different kinds of answers to that. One is practical and implementable. It, it's gaining some sense of temporal proportion, understanding the intrinsic rates of natural processes like climate change, the, the time scales of phenomena that happen. These are things that are on, they matter to the way we live today and should inform decisions we make in the political and economic realm. But I also feel that it's important in a philosophical way to remind ourselves that we are earthlings, we're part of a very long continuum. And I do think that there's some existential comfort to be found in understanding these things, that we're not just perching on this place arbitrarily. We're from here. This place created us. We emerged from this particular planet. And why wouldn't we want to have that deep sense of our, our heritage? And I, those two things are not separate either. I think if we don't feel it um, in a very kind of visceral way, we don't take it seriously when we're asked to implement these things in a practical way. So uh, I want to follow up on both of those threads, and and maybe we'll sort of weave here. I'll probably lean towards the practical and then skew us towards the end to the philosophical. <laughs> um, you use the term in your book, polytemporal thinking. What is that? It's the geologic habit of seeing in four dimensions, with time being the other dimensions, recognizing that every place has earlier iterations and being able to kind of hold in the mind's eye different versions of a particular place or of the earth as a whole. So is that something that is like second nature to you now? Do you have, you know, fall into polytemporal thinking, you know, spontaneously or do you kind of meditate your way there? I mean, what's it feel like to engage in that? I think I can't not do it at this point. And the, I mean, I, you're, it's probably true for you, too. It's, it's like learning. You can't unlearn reading. You can't drive by a billboard that has words on it and not read it if you know how to do that. Um, and just because I spend so much of my waking hours looking at rocks, teaching about rocks, teaching about how the earth got to be the way it is, I, I, I can't not do it. Sometimes I wish I, I just could not but I can't get away from it. <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, well, I, I, I wish I did it more. Uh, but, I, but I also feel like it's, one, it's something very nurturing, mm -hmm. um, and I, I do find it important. I mean, I do think I, it's not a second nature to me as uh, it sounds like it is to you. I wish it was, because I think, I think it's a really valuable, um, it's a valuable language. It's a valuable book you're reading, you know, and, uh, and that it does do something for the soul that's a little bit indescribable. Yeah. Although I, I often 
have this almost maddening feeling. I'm walking on a beach on Lake Superior. It's beautiful. There's so many different fragments of texts. It's like a book that's been shredded up and scattered around. And I can see a paragraph here, paragraph there. And it's just like cacophonous almost in trying to just walk on the beach and stop picking up every single rock. <laughs> I feel like there was something in your long now talk about uh, a parchment, like an ancient parchment that had been written on and rewritten on and rewritten on. I think you used that as an analogy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a great word, palimpsest. So it's a word used by medievalists to describe these, these um, parchments that were inked and then scraped and then re-inked because it was a real pain to make parchment. You would always recycle it. Um, and many texts, including, as I understand, Archimedes texts, only survive as these vestiges underneath more recent texts. But that's a brilliant metaphor for the way geologists see that there's all of these erasures and re-inkings on top of each other. And I, I do think some people find the exercise, though, of trying to imagine geologic time as as intimidating or, or something like that, that we're so small or nothing in the grand scale of things. But I don't know. What's your reaction to that? Because it feels like sort of a natural reaction for, you know, non-geologists. Absolutely. And I, I do empathize with that. And I think we geologists are partly to blame because for so long we have flogged people over the head with how old the earth is, billions of years, and not emphasized the narrative part that we've been talking about. That, yeah, the earth is old, but that's not just the point. It's not just the, the age. It's look at all of these things that have transpired here and how they are connected to us today. And so I make the distinction between Chronos, which is just the raw measurement of time, the 10 to the 6th, 10 to the ninth years, and Kairos, which is the Greek word for something like time within a narrative, which is a very different thing. It's, it's the story where you start caring about sequence. It's not just how old or how long ago, but what happened? <laughs> and I think if mm. we were better at telling those stories and educating people from an early age about the planet they live on, it wouldn't feel so alienating. So, you know, that's actually a really good segue to talking about the Anthropocene. I, I got to say, where I'm at with this is I'm really conflicted. There is a part of me that feels like this is an incredibly important term, that it's an, a useful framing device for all the ways in which humans have become a geologic agent uh, and, and that is not limited to climate change and encompasses so much more. Earth's geology is changing. There's another part of me that says it's hubristic and that it's arrogant and that, um, and that it's also a prognosis. We don't know how this plays out. And frankly, the reason I am engaged in this show is because that question is very active in my mind. Where are you on this? What's your take on not necessarily the start date for the Anthropocene, but sort of the appropriateness of it, especially as it captures our relationship to time? Yeah, I'm I'm conflicted, too. I certainly use it as a shorthand, so I don't have to say the recent time in which humans have become geologic agents of the first order. It's easier to just say now in the Anthropocene. Um, whether it should actually be adopted as a formal stratigraphic entity, I don't really have skin in that game. Um, mm. I do think it's parallel with some of the big inflection points that m mark at least epoch level, E-P-O-C-H level divisions of the geologic timescale where we see um, 
sudden changes in the geochemical rules, like the Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum. That, that's the boundary between two epochs, the Paleocene and the Eocene. But I, I don't know. I, I think there are valid arguments for saying we're changing some of the, the rules of the way the Earth system is operating at a scale that's commensurate at least at the epoch level, which is, is what people are proposing. Yeah. Yeah. So no, no necessarily skin in the game about a start date. or But the conversation's important, right? Yeah. I mean, that's the thing to me is that we're talking right. about it. I, I think I think the risk for me in terms of using it as a communication device is that there's a conflation of power and control mm. that we can talk about ourselves as uh, uh, the sum total of humanity as a powerful geologic agent. But, but the real question is about how much can we direct that? How much choice do we have? And how much can we steer the ship one way or another once we come to terms with that power? And so I, I, I feel like that's important too. Well, I, I, the analogy I sometimes think of is um, a two-year-old can sort of exert a lot of power in a room, but is not really steering it in any productive direction. God, tell me so, about yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> Throwing a tantrum a you know, is, yeah. is yeah, a yeah, yeah. powerful <laughs> statement, but, but it's not by any means control. So um, that's what we should keep in mind. Anthropocene does not mean we've got our hands on the knobs and, and we can decide what the next step is. It just means we're making a big mess and uh, who knows what's going what's gonna to happen next. Yeah. Um, so I do want to skew back one more time. You know, I asked the question earlier about polytemporal thinking and sort of, you know, what does this do? And there's a, there is a practical consideration. And you sort of alluded to a philosophical consideration. And even I've heard you in other interviews, you know, even say it's something of a spiritual endeavor. And I feel like you're pretty cool with leaning into that. Um, and, and I know I am. I know that time for me and in geologic time, contemplating it is is not so different from contemplating the idea of a higher power, es especially since timefulness um, is kind of a play on the idea of mindfulness, too. Well, you're right. I'm, first of all, I will say deeply agnostic, um, very lapsed Lutheran. <laughs> <laughs> um, haven't been a churchgoer for four decades. So I'm certainly not coming from any doctrinal point of view. And I, I can reflect for myself um, a change in my relationship with geology. I think probably when I was in my 30s, my husband died. I was a single parent. It was a, a really tough time. Um, and at the same time, had a demanding day job. And I think it was the combination of those things and, and just the intrinsic nature of what we as geologists study that made geology more than just an intellectual exercise for me. If you really start thinking deeply about what you're studying, it's, it's very profound. Um, and for me, I do find some kind of solace or comfort in being able to have a deep understanding of this place and particular um, rock units in places that I also have shared remarkable human interactions. Um, I think that's a big part of the practice of geology for many of us is the adventures we've shared with other human beings in deep time, <laughs> in beautiful mm -hmm. places. Um, so yes, I, I am careful here. I am not prescribing any particular um, theological vantage point, but I, I, 
I think we're fooling us as sci- our, ourselves as scientists if we don't acknowledge that there, this touches on deeper human questions. I know that, uh, and I said this at the outset, for me, uh, this combination of geologic forces and humanity, there's something just so um, infinitely deep about that idea. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I sometimes have this thought that the planet wants its story to be read. <laughs> mm. So it's, it's kind of a remarkable thing that um, we do have this long record that's available to us. And then tectonics, of course, kind of tilts all those books on end so we can see them um, and read them through time. So it's almost as if this planet has, has made that record readable to us. <laughs> I love that thought. Um, you know, whether intentionally or not, I love that. I love, I love thinking that it might be true, you know? Yeah. Um, well, Marsha, this has been such a delight. It's been um, a real pleasure to read your book and have this conversation. So uh, thank you for making the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. That's it for this episode of Generation Anthropocene. I want to thank Jackson Roach for helping to mix this episode. Thanks also to Leslie Chang for feedback on earlier versions of this. And finally, thanks to Miles Traer for telling me about Marsha's book. Thanks for listening. Hope to see you soon. You and your microphone again talking about the Anthropocene?